Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello and welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm your host. And today's episode includes news that came out this morning. So if you're listening to this podcast on Wednesday, January 13th, the date this podcast came out, I am recording this intro on that same day. Does that blow your mind? <laughs> Listen, this is untrodden territory for me. As you know, if you've listened to any episodes of this podcast, I love historical stories. I'm comfortable in the 1950s. I'm really comfortable in the 1890s. 1850s? I'll go there. I have a newspapers.com pro login. I feel very comfortable working in the past with stories that are over. You know, like we already know how they played out. We know what happened to everyone. We know where everyone is. And I can take my time and sift through them. Anyway, I'm, I guess I'm kind of um, rambling here because I'm nervous to get to the point. But my point is today's story just happened, sort of. And I have been very conflicted about covering it. So we're going to talk about Lisa Montgomery today. Her crime happened in 2004, but her sentencing was carried out at 1 a.m. this morning. I, th this is um, on both sides, the side of the criminal's background and the side of what happened to the victim. This is the worst case I've ever researched. I mean, th it's so, so sad and horrible and violent on multiple levels. And for that reason alone, I didn't think I wanted to cover it. Um, as my awesome research assistant Jill said, there are no winners here. But it felt disingenuous to me to have a podcast called Criminal Broads when we were living in an era when the first person, excuse me, the first woman to be executed by the government in almost 70 years was moving towards her execution. It just felt like, come on, Tori, like you can't ignore that that is happening if you have a podcast that talks about incarcerated women, women who have committed crimes. So I decided to cover it and I thought I would just tell you right now in the intro all my conflicted feelings so you can sort of under, hopefully understand where I'm coming from. I started working on this episode feeling very, very bad for Lisa Montgomery. You will soon understand what I mean. And then I researched more about Bobby Joe Stinnett, the victim and the crime itself, and my sympathies started ebbing away from Lisa Montgomery. I was like, wait a minute, I don't know. Um, and then I read more about Lisa Montgomery, and I saw photos of her as a little girl. She was this sweet little girl, this big smile. And, you know, my sympathies came pouring back. And this is a, this is a like, ebb and flow of sympathy that I experience with a lot of my work. I... You know, it's like, in my experience, the more you find out about someone, the more it humanizes them. I recorded most of the episode a couple of days ago, but, um, you know, the news was changing up until this morning. So I've, re I've recorded some of it today. 
I can't guarantee that more news. I, I know that more news is going to come out after this episode is released. So like here's a little asterisk that this story might we might get more information and some of the info in this story might become outdated, though I don't think it would become outdated. It's more like there just might be more stuff coming out after this episode that I wasn't able to put in here. And this episode is about the death penalty, which whew, I know it's a complicated topic. I, I personally, while researching this, did not and do not think it's right to execute Lisa Montgomery for a number of reasons. That being said, I, I understand. I have people in my life who I'm very close to who are pro-death penalty. And I do understand the rage, really, like the feeling of like this isn't fair when someone kills another person and we have to have vengeance on them. I think that that is a understandable human compulsion, but I don't think we can have that compulsion in the law. I also think that the reason I find murder so horrible and the reason you all do too, I think it's because it's like playing God. It's like, I'm going to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. That's what's especially horrible to me about serial killers. It's like repeatedly playing God. You know, Ted Bundy is always, he was out, he was out there in the streets just playing God, thinking he got to pick who lived and who died. And sadly, he did get to pick that. And to me, the death penalty, I don't know, gets a little too close to the playing God for my comfort. It's also deciding who lives and who dies. I'm just not sure that is something any human should be allowed to decide. So now that you know my tortured and conflicted heart, let's get into the story. Um, well, first, we're going to have an ad break to hear from our literary sponsor today, and then we're going to get into the story. And I just want to tell you now, there are not enough trigger warnings in the world for this story. There are there are multiple instances of sexual assault in this story, and there's violence and just horrific details. So please, if you can't handle this, please skip ahead, and I'm going to have a much lighter episode for you next week. All right, thank you all for listening and for always being so empathetic and sympathetic and understanding and willing to consider all the nuances in these stories. I really appreciate you guys. Okay, ad break, then we'll get into the story. Support for this podcast comes from W.W. Norton, the independent and employee-owned publisher of The Unquiet Englishman, A Life of Graham Greene, a complete portrait of a many-faceted titan, according to Booklist, Richard Greene's vivid, deeply researched account of the tumultuous life of one of the 20th century's greatest novelists portrays a traumatized adolescent, a restless traveler, and an unfailing advocate for human rights. Above all, the unquiet Englishman shows us a brilliant novelist mastering his craft. The Unquiet Englishman is available wherever books are sold. Check it out. The two women met because they both loved the same type of dog. They loved rat terriers, to be precise, 
It's a terrible name for a dog, but the dogs themselves are precious, small, with big ears, and known to be friendly and inquisitive. There were a lot of differences between these two women. One of them was 23, and one of them was 36. One of them was brunette, and one of them was blonde. One of them was pregnant, and one of them would never be pregnant again because she'd had her fallopian tubes burned shut on the recommendation of her abusive, overbearing mother. But both women loved these dogs. Bobby Jo Stinnett was the 23-year-old brunette, a pretty young woman from Skidmore, Missouri, who ran a dog breeding business called Happy Haven Farms. In April of 2004, Bobby Jo and her husband went down to Texas to enter a dog show where one of their dogs won a blue ribbon. It was there that they met the 36-year-old woman, Lisa Montgomery, who'd come down to the show from Melvern, Kansas. Lisa remembered Bobby Joe after their meeting and kept track of her online. The two women frequented the same online message boards where people would talk about rat terriers, and not long after the dog show, Bobby Joe posted a piece of ecstatic news online. She was pregnant. She even updated the website for Happy Haven Farms to include photos of her, visibly pregnant, among her dogs. Lisa noticed all this. Lisa kept watch. She kept Bobby Joe's happy news inside of her for eight long months, until one day, using the alias Darlene Fisher, she sent a message to a different dog breeder, saying that she wanted to get her children a rat terrier puppy, and did he have any idea where she could find one? The breeder referred her to Bobby Joe Stinnett of Happy Haven Farms, as Lisa knew that he would. Then Lisa contacted Bobby Joe saying she'd been referred to her and asking if she could come over to her house and adopt a rat terrier puppy. And Bobby Joe, who was eight months pregnant, and who had probably at some point that day put her hands on her stomach and felt her baby kick and wondered nervously and excitedly about the future, as women who are eight months pregnant tend to do, Bobby Joe said, come on over. Something unbelievably awful was about to happen to Bobby Joe Stinnett. She was about to experience pain and fear like she had never known before. She was about to live a nightmare. But the nightmare was already with Lisa Montgomery, swirling around her, never letting up. Lisa had been trapped inside the nightmare for decades, from the time she was just a baby. The nightmare had molded her, turning her into the sort of person that would knock on Bobby Joe's door that day with a knife beneath her jacket. The day was December 16th, 2004, a date that Lisa had been telling people was her due date. Lisa Montgomery's first words, according to her mother, were, Don't spank me. It hurts. She was born in 1968 to Judy Shaughnessy, who drank copious amounts of alcohol throughout her pregnancy. Judy was mentally ill and possibly a victim of incest at the hands of her father, and a mother worse than any character you might find in a crime novel. If Lisa cried, Judy would cover her mouth with duct tape. And so Lisa learned not to cry, because if she cried, she'd suffocate herself. 
If Lisa didn't finish her food, Judy would force her to sit in her high chair for hours. Judy beat Lisa and her other children with whatever was lying around. Cords, belts, clothes hangers, brooms. Judy took a shovel once and used it to kill the family dog in front of her children to punish them. Judy drank and drank and drank. She was always bringing strange men around the house. When Lisa was four and her stepsister Diane was eight, one of these men began raping Diane in the girl's tiny bedroom as Lisa lay there, close enough to touch her sister. As it turned out, Diane was the one who got away. Social services took her away from the nightmare that same year and put her in a foster home with a loving family, but Lisa and her younger sister stayed behind in the dark. As Diane was being driven away from their house for the last time, she threw up. She knew exactly what was going to happen to Lisa once she was out of the picture. She remembers that the last expression she saw in Lisa's eyes was fear. The men that Judy kept bringing around were highly dangerous. She married one of them, Jack Kleiner, who became Lisa's new stepfather. Jack was the sort of man who would stand outside his neighbor's house every Sunday morning and masturbate as his neighbor, who was a preacher, left for church with his wife and one-year-old daughter. Jack started molesting Lisa when she was 11. He moved the entire family to the middle of nowhere, a trailer at the end of an isolated road outside of the tiny town of Sperry, Oklahoma, and he built a special room that leaned against the trailer and had its own separate entrance. When Lisa was 13, he put her in that room and began to rape her, and he'd beat her head against the concrete floor. He told Lisa that if she said anything or tried to resist, he'd start raping her little sister, too. It was in that room that the nightmare descended over Lisa for good. Jack Kleiner would bring his friends over and let them rape his stepdaughter, too, as Judy, Lisa's mom, would hustle the other kids out of the trailer so that they couldn't hear what was happening. Jack would let his friends be in that room for hours, multiple men at once. The men would hit Lisa, and when they were done urinate on her. To endure it, Lisa began to disassociate from reality. She told one of her stepbrothers that when this happened, she would try to, quote, go away in her mind. Her mother didn't care. She made the situation worse. Judy would act like Lisa's pimp, forcing her to have sex with a local plumber and an electrician in exchange for repairs around the trailer, telling her daughter that she had to earn her keep. Later, a therapist would note in the understatement of the century that Judy had a lack of empathy for her daughter and that Lisa seemed to feel like all of this horrific abuse was her own fault. Even later, a clinical psychologist who evaluated Lisa would describe her like this, a person who had profound disconnection from her body, from her mind, from her experience. Those were disconnections that were tragic in their consequences.
As Lisa grew up, her disconnections from reality got worse. When she was only 18, her mother pressured her into marrying her own stepbrother, Carl Bowman, who was 25. Carl would sexually assault her in horrible ways, sometimes with bottles and sometimes on camera. Another of her stepbrothers actually watched one of these videos and described it like a scene out of a horror movie. Here's a telling detail about Carl Bowman. He is currently sitting in jail, waiting for a trial, charged with child sexual abuse. If you're balking at the fact that one of Lisa's stepbrothers watched a video of her being raped and thought it was horrible and yet didn't say anything to anyone for years, you're not alone. There were so many points in the story of Lisa Montgomery where someone could have stepped in to save her, but no one ever did. There were friends who suspected that something was wrong at home. There were teachers and school administrators who thought that she was probably getting abused but didn't investigate it or report it. Even though Lisa was wearing dirty clothes to school and spacing out in class, and her grades were declining so much that she was placed in special needs classes, all of this was happening right in front of them, and no one ever said, huh, maybe we should look into what's going on with this girl. The most glaring example of inaction is this. One day, Lisa told her cousin, who was a police officer, that she was being raped. She was shaking and sobbing as she told him this. And he believed her, but he did nothing. Lisa graduated from high school in 1986, the same year she married Carl. Over the next three years, she gave birth to four children, three daughters and a son. After the fourth birth, her mother pressured her into getting sterilized so that she could never get pregnant again. The process was called tubal fulguration and involved, quote, occluding her fallopian tubes by cauterization, or burning them shut. She and Carl divorced and remarried again, and then divorced for good in 1998. The next year, she moved to a tiny Kansas town called Melvern, and the year after that, she married Kevin Montgomery, an electrician. Lisa's family had noticed that her mental health grew worse after having four children in such quick succession. At times, she seemed completely divorced from reality. One of her daughters remembers being terribly embarrassed when Lisa would twirl around in public like a little girl. Another time, Lisa put a diaper on a goat, put the goat in the car, and drove the goat down to Texas in what the New York Times called a haze of mania. She drank. She drove erratically and frequently got into accidents. She didn't feed her children. She didn't bathe them. She didn't bathe herself. She got lice. They moved all the time. Lisa herself lived at 61 addresses in 36 years. And at one point, they all lived in a house with no running water, no furniture, loose wires, and no beds for the kids who slept on the floor. Lisa would go into trances. And if her children needed to get her attention, they learned to call out Martha. Using a name like that instead of calling her mom seemed to get her attention a little bit better. Later, Lisa would say that she was sometimes not sure whether the things around her were actually real. Even though she could no longer have children, she seemed to have an obsession with being pregnant. During both of her marriages, she would fake pregnancies and then say that she'd lost the baby. Once, she claimed that she donated her baby's body to science. And then, in the spring of 2004, 
Lisa found out that her dog breeder acquaintance, Bobby Jo Stinnett, was pregnant. At some point, Lisa told her husband, Kevin, that she was pregnant, too. She started buying maternity clothes, a home birthing kit, and items for a nursery, like a bassinet. Two of her half-sisters knew that this was impossible and that Lisa had told this pregnancy lie at least five times before, and they tried to warn her in-laws, Kevin's parents, that she was faking it. They worried that she might do something drastic. But other than that, no one did anything. Lisa's ex-husband, Carl, the one who filmed his rape of her, also knew that she couldn't be pregnant. At the time, he was trying to get custody of two of their children, the two littlest ones. He told her that he was going to expose this pregnancy charade and use it against her in the custody battle. Lisa said, no, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. I really am pregnant. And so she watched a video of a C-section online. And she took a practice drive to Skidmore, Missouri, in her car. And the next day, she got in the car again and drove back to Skidmore to meet Bobby Joe, telling her that she wanted to buy something from her, something small and vulnerable, a puppy. Bobby Joe Stinnett and Lisa Montgomery played with the dogs in the backyard for a while. Lisa was calling herself Darlene Fisher then. There were a lot of differences between the two women. Bobby Joe was 23 and Lisa was 36. Bobby Joe was pregnant and Lisa was lying about being pregnant. Bobby Joe was brunette and Lisa was blonde. Bobby Joe was not yet inside the nightmare. Lisa was carrying the nightmare with her. She wore a jacket. And inside the jacket, she had a length of clothesline and a kitchen knife and a hospital-grade umbilical cord clamp. The women went inside Bobby Joe's house. Lisa took out the clothesline. The nightmare came crashing down on Bobby Joe. Lisa strangled the young mother until she was unconscious and then began performing a gruesome C-section on her with the kitchen knife. Bobby Joe woke up and fought desperately to save herself and her baby, and Lisa strangled her again. Then she took the eight-month-old baby from her dying mother's womb and drove off. It was a girl. A few minutes later, Lisa pulled off to the side of the road and clamped the baby's umbilical cord. Then she opened the trunk of her car, took out a car seat, strapped the baby in, and drove toward home. Bobby Joe's mother was the one who found her daughter lying in a pool of blood. She had something strange clasped in her hands, strands of blonde hair. The police tracked Lisa down using Bobby Joe's computer. 
they found messages that Bobby Joe had been exchanging with one Darlene Fisher and traced the IP address to Lisa's house. In the meantime, Lisa had taken the baby back across state lines from Missouri to Kansas, which would make this a federal case soon enough. She called her husband, saying that she'd gone into labor while shopping in the city of Topeka, Kansas, and had delivered the baby at a clinic. So her husband, Kevin, and two of their children drove to Topeka to meet Lisa. They found her and the baby in the parking lot of a Long John Silver's. The five of them went home, and Kevin and Lisa called their friends, announcing the arrival of their daughter, Abigail. The next day, they went out for breakfast with the baby in a pink bonnet, and they told everyone they met that she was theirs. When the news of the baby reached Lisa's mother, Judy, Judy snapped, Yeah, right. She either stole it or bought it. Not long after Lisa and Kevin and the baby arrived back home after breakfast, the cops drove up. Sergeant Investigator Randy Strong was one of the cops who arrived at Lisa's house that day, and the first thing he noticed was the dogs. There were rat terriers running around outside the house, playing around his feet. He got chills. He knew he was at the house of the murderer. He and his partner, Don Fritz, went inside, where they found Lisa sitting on the couch holding a tiny baby with a perfectly round head who was very, very quiet. Randy Strong had seen plenty of births since he worked as a paramedic and was a father himself, and he knew that babies with very round heads usually hadn't been birthed vaginally, since coming out of the birth canal tends to make babies' heads a bit pointed at first. Lisa told the investigators all sorts of different stories, that she'd given birth in Topeka, that she'd given birth at home with friends, that she'd given birth at home alone and had thrown the placenta into the creek. At one point, in an attempt to get Lisa to confess, Fritz patted her hand, saying, We've got to have the truth. Then he looked at the hand he was patting. There was something dark under her fingernails. He was sure it was blood. Later, when they moved their questioning to the sheriff's office, Lisa dropped her head. You've got the correct one, she said. You've got the right baby. The baby girl lived. She was examined by emergency medical technicians and then returned to her father, who gave her her mother's middle name and called her Victoria Joe. Womb Raider screamed the headlines as Lisa Montgomery was taken away. Her defense team argued for the insanity defense, and their doctors diagnosed Lisa with depression, borderline personality disorder, PTSD, and pseudosciasis, the false belief that you are pregnant. The doctor for the government agreed with all of those diagnoses except for the pseudosciasis one. The defense had one of their doctors hypothesize that Lisa had killed Bobby Joe in a delusional state, and that her delusional state had included all the actions beforehand— the buying of maternity clothes, the researching home births and C-sections on the internet, etc. But the government had one of their doctors argue that Lisa had known full well that she was not pregnant. She never sought prenatal care, which she had done with all her real pregnancies. And she had indicated that she wasn't pregnant on an insurance application in September of 2004, just two months before she killed Bobby Joe. 
The defense interpreted her contradictory stories about the birth as signs of her delusional state. The prosecution interpreted them as signs that she was lying. The jury agreed with the prosecution, and in October of 2007, they found Lisa guilty of kidnapping resulting in death and recommended the death penalty. The judge agreed with the jury. Today, over 13 years after her trial, many think that Lisa was not given the best defense. She ended up with three male attorneys who, according to Rachel Louise Snyder in the New York Times, failed to offer a comprehensive picture of her decades of torture. Instead, quote, they suggested that her other half-brother, Tommy Kleiner, was the actual killer, despite having his own probation officer as his alibi. Her defense team tried to portray Lisa as a really great mother, instead of arguing that the fact that she wasn't a good mother was a sign of how much her history of abuse had impaired her. Instead of presenting compelling evidence on the link between her abuse and her mental disorders, on the link between her mental disorders and her crime, one of her attorneys stood up and read a poem about rape to the courtroom. Her prosecutors mocked her history, calling it the abuse excuse. And so, when the jury went away to deliberate on the appropriate sentence for her awful crime, they didn't know all of the details of Lisa's nightmare, and they didn't see the brain scans of Lisa Montgomery's brain, which has tissue missing in certain parts of it and other signs of brain damage. They didn't, some think, have the whole picture. After her trial, Lisa was placed in a federal prison in Texas for female inmates with special mental health needs. A psychiatrist who treated her there for two years saw her in a, quote, acute dissociative psychotic state at least twice. Other doctors who examined her there said that she experienced complex partial seizures, childlike behavior, sensory overload, and trouble understanding what was real both in the moment and what had been real in the past. She suffered from loss of memory and had the feeling that she had people inside of her who were talking to her. But for the first time in her life, in prison, she actually got some help. She was put on antipsychotic medications and kept around mostly women, and her symptoms subsided. But if she was ever left alone in a room with a man, she would panic and sometimes break out in hives. The fight to save or execute Lisa came down to the wire. This past fall, her execution was scheduled for December 8, 2020. When the warden at Lisa's prison read her the execution warrant, her grasp on reality began to slip again. She had auditory hallucinations in which her mother was yelling at her. She had nightmares about rape. She started panicking around male guards and experiencing what her lawyers reported as disruption in bodily functions related to elimination. She thought that God was speaking to her through a connect-the-dot puzzle, and she thought she was getting messages from a feather. And she grew more and more paranoid, claiming that a male psychologist told her, don't you just want to say, fuck the government and kill yourself? She was forced to wear a loose gown called a suicide smock with no bra or underwear on beneath it, and she told her lawyers that every time she squatted down, the male guards could see her nakedness, which terrified her. 
Her lawyers risked travel to meet with her, but because they traveled, they contracted the coronavirus, and they were so severely impaired by their symptoms that they couldn't file for clemency in time. So Lisa's execution was moved back to December 31st and then January 12th, 2021. And as all this rescheduling was happening, there was a flurry of activity as activists tried to get Lisa's execution delayed again or canceled altogether. To be very clear, no one was arguing that she was innocent or that her crime wasn't horrible or even that she should go free, just that she shouldn't be executed. The Women's Prison Association, for example, called Lisa a criminalized survivor and a victim of horrific crimes before she ever committed one. Over a thousand experts, prosecutors, anti-violence advocates, advocates for abused children, etc., asked President Trump to stop the execution, and over 300,000 people signed a petition asking the same thing. At minimum, the petition said, Lisa deserved a stay of execution so that her lawyers could have the time to properly argue that her sentence be reduced to life in prison. Others pointed out that Lisa's sentence felt unfair simply because of the way other crimes like hers had been sentenced. There had been at least 12 other crimes like Lisa's in the past 20 years crimes in which one woman has murdered a pregnant woman and taken her baby, but Lisa has been the only one sentenced to death. The day before her scheduled execution, Lisa was shackled and moved from Texas to Terre Haute, Indiana, where the federal execution chamber is located. The penitentiary there is only for men, and so Lisa had to stay in the execution building itself overnight. As she waited, still unmoored from reality, according to her lawyers, there were a flurry of appeals and court orders designed to block her execution. She had been scheduled to be executed on Tuesday, January 12th at 6 p.m., but the fight continued in various courts late into the night, long past 6 p.m., as journalists waited nervously at Terre Haute to see whether or not they'd be witnessing an execution that night. And then, in the middle of the night, as most of the country was asleep, the Supreme Court cleared the way for Lisa's execution, as they've done for the past 10 federal executions. Reporters were told that Bobby Joe's family would not be addressing them afterwards. According to Lisa's lawyer, Kelly Henry, who emailed reporter Liliana Segura, Lisa was not allowed to have one last prayer with her spiritual advisor. Across the street from the penitentiary, in the parking lot of a Dollar General, anti-death penalty activists gathered, tolling a bell. Well, actually, they didn't have their usual bell, so they were playing a recording of a bell on a phone. They stood there in the darkness as the bell tolled, holding signs that said, no more killing, and waiting. Eight minutes after midnight, the reporter Michael Tarm from the Associated Press got in a van to be taken out to the death chamber. He had to leave his cell phone behind. When he got back, he sent out the following series of tweets. Lisa Montgomery is dead, pronounced at 1.31 a.m. As the execution process began, a female executioner standing over Lisa Montgomery's shoulder leaned over, gently removed Montgomery's face mask, and asked her if she had any last words. No, Montgomery responded in a quiet, muffled voice. She said nothing else. As a curtain was raised from a divider separating Lisa Montgomery from the witness rooms, she looked momentarily bewildered, glancing at journalists peering from behind the glass. 
She tapped her fingers nervously for seconds, but otherwise showed no signs of distress and closed her eyes. As the lethal injection began at around 1.18 a.m., Montgomery kept licking her lips and gasped briefly as the pentobarbital entered her body through IVs on both arms. A few minutes later, her midsection throbbed for a moment, but quickly stopped. That's the end of the tweets. Lisa was the first woman executed by the government in almost 70 years. Today, there are no more women on federal death row. She's gone now. So, is the nightmare over? Did the nightmare die with Lisa? Has Bobby Joe been avenged? Has justice been served? Or is the nightmare still out there, roaring inside the next Judy Shaughnessy and the next Jack Kleiner like a second mouth, waiting to devour another little girl? As national focus has turned to Lisa for these past few weeks, the story of poor 23-year-old Bobby Joe has occasionally fallen by the wayside. The young mother hovers on the outskirts of Lisa's story, a ghost forever weeping for the baby she never got to see. Bobby Joe couldn't wait to be a mother. She died clutching strands of her killer's hair. The last thing she ever said to her own mother on the phone was that she was expecting someone to come over and look at her dogs. Oh, they're here, Bobby Joe said. I've got to go. That ominous little line, found buried in an affidavit, is one of the few times we ever hear her voice. The end, my loves. Thank you for listening. Was that not a tough story or what? Send me your thoughts. Um, you can email me at criminalbroads at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, criminalbroads. And I'd like to thank the eight lovely folks who are my new patrons for this episode and make this whole thing possible. I would like to call out, not call out, that sounds bad, <laughs> but thank, sincerely, Sarah F., Bridget WG, Aussie Amanda, hello Amanda, Other Other Amy, hi Other Other Amy, <laughs> Meg C, Angela H, Cecilia, one of my favorite women's names because my baby is named Cecil, and Anna W, or Anna W. Thank you guys so much for your support. It really means the world to me. Um, if you feel like becoming a patron, you can find me at patreon.com slash criminal broads. I'll link it in the show notes. And, you know, I, uh, what else do I have to say? Oh, okay. My other podcast, Red Flags, has an episode coming out tomorrow, Thursday, January 14th, also about the death penalty. This one focuses on Dustin Higgs, whose uh, execution has been scheduled for this week. But as with Lisa, uh, Montgomery, there's a lot of legal, last-minute legal battles going on. There's another man, Corey Johnson, who's also scheduled to be killed this week, and it's a similar thing. Ooh, I know. These are such heavy topics, and 
it's sort of hard to just process them. But FYI, that's what's happening. And check out the Red Flags episode if you want to learn more. Um, I also just wanted to end with a random thought I had. Last night I was on Twitter watching, you know, these journalists who were at the execution place, um, sort of waiting to find out if Lisa Montgomery would be executed or not. And then I was on my Instagram and seeing like no one seemed to be aware that this was happening. And I felt that first, you know, that self-righteous anger, like why, like, why aren't you talking about this? Like, how dare you? But then it just occurred to me that people don't know that this is happening. I don't think I would know that this was happening if I didn't happen to have a podcast on this subject. Um, there's stuff happening all the time that I'm not up on and refreshing Twitter feeds of journalists to follow. So it was a reminder to me to be gracious with people, you know, and to not be mad when people don't seem to be aware of something that I personally find very pressing and urgent because there's so much going on in the world that there's we're all missing urgent pressing things all the time. And anyway, that's a minor point. There are much bigger issues in this episode. But it was a thought I had, a reminder for for me to give people grace when it seems like they're you know, not aware of an issue and maybe a reminder for the rest of us as well. Okay. (sighs) Thanks for being here, guys. As I've been saying, uh, next week's episode is going to be a lot lighter and I've got a great interview guest coming on who's going to tell us a story. Oh, I can't wait to just hear a story, be in the audience with you. And so have a lovely week. Be safe, be well, and I will talk to you then. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.